Okay, turn to John chapter two, please. John chapter two. Um, I'm still wanting to talk and explore a little bit more and, and um, help us understand a little bit more a vision of what it would look like to flourish and what it would look like to use our power um, not only for ourselves but for those around us. So uh, this is a, a great passage um, to look at that. Um, I wanted to take a few Sundays to cast a biblical vision of the kind of life God wants us all to have, not just for this year, but in general. This is how our life can be marked. Um, Let me pray, and then we'll read John chapter 2, 1 through 11. Lord, would you guide us through this passage? Would you cast your vision in our lives, and would you renew and empower um, an excitement in us to be who you've made us to be? Lord, I pray that we would see the glory of what it means to be human, the glory of what it means to be made in your image. And I pray that you would um, just arouse in us an incredible um, renewal of our own image bearing, the sacredness of who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a famous passage. Uh, We've gone over it actually recently before, but I wanted to revisit it and pull out some other things. This is John chapter two, one through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, hey, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is verse six if you're following along. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, "Fill fill the jars with water. And then they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn, who drew the water out knew, <clears throat> the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this was the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, last week we looked at Genesis chapter one and we discovered that the God of the Bible isn't the kind of God that consolidates power within himself or wants to hoard it or keep it. But um, instead, to our astonishment, we found that God creates creatures and then endows them with their own power to keep creating after their own kinds. It's remarkable. um, Until the earth, sky, and waters were teeming and flourishing, that's when God says, this is good. So we've got this image of God from the very beginning, an image of abundance, of multiplication, of teeming, of flourishing. That's, That's the heart of God from page one. He wants, he not only makes creatures, but he gives them power. He shares power so that they can keep creating. And then we learned some powerful things about mankind last week, about you and me. This is what I'm hoping to get you excited about. I'm hoping that you get excited about being you. (laughs) Because we learned some things from the very beginning. For one thing, we heard the language of God decisively shift from the impersonal, distant, sovereign command, let there be, let there be light, let there be creatures, let there be birds, et cetera, et cetera. And he shifted that to the deeply personal, and in the Hebrew, the cohortive um, plural mood, let us create man in our image, in our likeness. In other words, when God created mankind, he got very personal about it. We are made in his image. Now this um, image-bearing quality that you and I have, it actually means a lot of things theologically. But for our purposes, we learn that man was made in the image of God, that is to say, with the ability to create like God. We, like God, can say, let there be. 
we, like God, can say, let us make. Um, Right now, some of you are holding devices because someone said, let there be. What if I could combine a computer and a phone and well, in Steve Jobs' vision, what if I could put the arts, the humanities, and technology into one device? And he went to his team and said, let us make. And the world was different. The culture is now different. And the command goes on, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and and that cover the earth with creeping things, the things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is endowing with power. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Scholars see in this language something much more comprehensive in scope than mere uh, biological reproduction between the sexes, as sacred as that is. They see a mandate for a broader human civilization um, that would result in a culture that accurately expresses the character of the creator God himself. That's the idea. Power then is a gift given to image bearers to cultivate culture, to cultivate society. We live in a place we live in, the, the civilization we live in today is, is in large part because people said, hey, we could do this. And what about if we did this? And let's try to do this. And maybe we could do this. Let's, have car, let's, let's, let's get horses and tie them together and see what they can pull. Maybe they can take us places. Let's see how things, let's make a combustible engine and put it in a vehicle and dare to drive it down the road. Let's see if it can run on a battery. Let's see if we, and on and on and on it goes to the culture that we create. Art, music, education, all of these things are the product of Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Let us make man with power to create as we create, to say, let there be, let us make. And of course, the greatest gift of that is the family. A man and a woman coming together saying, let us make other humans, other humans made in the image of God with th- that they themselves let's teach them to fear God that they themselves have the ability to say let there be let us make it's thrilling when your kids when they start to display this type of thing noble for those of you that don't know he's like a little engineer he's just always had a brain that thinks about building things and how things work just yesterday he was looking he's really into bridges he loves the bridges of Portland. You could ask him if you see it. Tell, ask him to tell you the bridges in order in, uh, over the Willamette River in Portland, and he will tell you. He'll tell you what his favorite one is. He'll tell you how they're built. He'll tell you the material that they use. He'll tell you how the, the, the bridges go up to let boats uh, go under and how they come back down. He'll tell you the whole thing. He'll, then he'll start talking about San Francisco and why the San Francisco uh, Golden Gate Bridge is not really that great. The really great one is the one that goes from, oh, I can't remember, San Francisco Bay Bridge is the really great one. He'll say it's just got great engineering, he'll tell you. And then he says, yesterday, he says, you know what I would do? I would build my own bridge that goes straight from the city of San Francisco to Alameda. I'd skip Oakland. I'd just go straight to, you know what he's doing? He's saying, let there be, maybe we could make. I didn't teach, that came with the package. God put that in him. That's what makes him image of God stuff. That's that's divine in him. It's incredible. Power then is a gift given to image bearers to help cultivate culture. And as we said last week, power is for image bearing. That's what you, you have power. Power is for image bearing and image bearing is for flourishing. I really want that to stick in your mind. That's, the Im- that's what we find in the first pages of the Bible. Power is for image bearing. Image bearing is for flourishing. Mankind was created with the power to flourish and be agents of flourishing wherever we go. 
in your job, at your families, all throughout. So then, the grand pattern of creation, catch this, is good to very good to glory. Do you see it? The first truth and declaration about the world in the Bible, the first truth and declaration about this world is God said it is what? Good. It is good. Everything in creation is good. Name some things. Name some things about this world that you think are good. Oranges, Oranges are very good. Yeah, they're good. <laughs> yep, that was that didn't take you long. What else? What else? Something. Fresh air is uh, is excellent. Yes. Yeah. What's that? Coffee. Oh, preach. Family. Oh yeah, family's good. Medications. Medications? Yeah, absolutely. That's good. But that's up for debate. Let's move on. She said, she said cats. Mm. Yeah. I so agree that coffee is good. Absolutely. With some cream. I like my coffee like my wife. Strong and blonde. <laughs> What else is good? Medical breakthroughs. Medical breakthroughs. Oh, man. Good stuff. Absolutely. Anyone else? Beef. Beef. Mm. Yes. Yes. Bacon. What? Bacon. Bacon. Absolutely. Oh, man. Chocolate. Chocolate. Oh, man. Sunrises. Su- sunrises. Oh, my gosh. Yes. If you're, and if you're not an early morning person, a sunset will do, too. In fact, last week... Um, there was a sunset, I, I don't know, I think it went viral. It was just incredible, and I failed to tell Nicole about it. And she was like, why didn't you come and get me? It was just like the, the sky was on fire. It's awesome. What's that? A double rainbow. I have seen a double rainbow. In fact, I saw a double rainbow at the Hartman's house at our home group, and it was, it was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so we agree. Creation is very good. So the created world is, is only good. But, but, once God's image bearers are on the scene, once they're present in the creation, did you notice in the text, then and only then is the world declared very good. It is interesting. Why? Well, the, because the essential function of the image bearer is to till, to tend, to give intention and intentionality and to cultivate the world in a way that unfolds its potential. That's what humans do. So nature is good. This, so let me put it this way. Nature is good, but culture, culture, human beings acting with creativity upon the good gifts of the natural world, that's culture, that's very good. Very, very good. Okay, grain. Grain is good. But then an image bearer comes along and begins to cultivate the grain and to thresh it and to harvest it. And he or she has the knowledge to separate the nutrient kernel from the chaff. And they grind it. They mix it with water. Throw in some yeast, a little bit of salt. And an image bearer like Paul, my friend Paul here comes along and bakes it. And the result is bread, grain is good, but bread is very good, very good. That's culture, that's, that's power. Power is for image bearing. Image bearing is for flourishing. Well, the story before us this morning, you're like, hello, John chapter two, is about wine. Wine. There are not many human cultural achievements that embody this pattern better than the cultivation of the grape. Grapes are good. Grapes are good. But when grapes are harvested, after countless hours of careful tending, when they're crushed under a, underfoot, or maybe in a press, if you like it better that way, and then placed into vats, and they release their sugar and feed these little creatures that we call yeast, And when this whole process is superintended by somebody that has expertise, someone that knows what they're doing, that has real great, you you get wine. Grapes are good, but wine is 
It's very good. Yeah, it's very good. Well, the story before us is all about the power of the truest image of God. This is Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. And he uses his power in this story so that things can flourish. So there's a lot we can learn by looking to the ultimate and true image bearer. There's a lot we can learn about our power today. By looking at Jesus, the true image of God, we can learn about our design and our purpose in life, and we can learn how to apply our power in, the, in a similar way and for similar purposes. Significantly, John records this miracle first because it tells us something very important about who Jesus is and the kind of power that he's bringing to restore upon the world. This is his inaugural miracle. You know, inaugurations are important. First speeches are important. First acts of a leader are very important. John's doing the same thing. He's saying, this is the first thing I want to put forward about Jesus so you know what he's come to do. Everything his power accomplishes in this story is something, albeit perhaps somewhat smaller in scale for us, possibly, but nonetheless, he wants to accomplish the same quality of redemption and culture through the power he's given to us. So we're going to learn four things. Jesus' power begin, um, brings healing and restoration. True power brings healing and restoration. Can we use our power as followers of Jesus to bring healing and restoration? Secondly, Jesus' power leads to overflow, abundance, excellence, and flourishing. Jesus' power leads to overflow, abundance, excellence, flourishing. Jesus' power, I love this point, Jesus' power is hidden even as it's revealed. Really interesting when we get there. Jesus' power is hidden even as it's revealed. And Jesus' power finally reveals his glory. The equation goes from good to very good to glorious. I can't wait to get to that point. So, but we're gonna have to. Number one, Jesus' power brings healing and restoration. Just under the surface of this story, you need, to un you need to understand, are these unmentioned but very real patterns of first century Palestinian culture. Underneath the story, weddings are great places to go, even today, to observe any culture, because all sorts of customs of that culture come to display. If you wanna learn about how people think Man, go to a wedding in a different culture and you'll learn really quick. At a wedding, if you just watch long enough, you will see obligations, roles, expectations that shape the choices of that culture displayed right before you. And that was certainly the case um, at a first century wedding. First of all, in the first century, weddings, you need to understand they are now to a certain extent, but even more so were community social events. The entire region assumed that they were invited. Not like here, where you send out a specific guest list and you're worried about who you're going to offend and all that type of thing. No, 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 no. There, it was assumed that everyone was invited. In fact, even to this day, in, uh, in uh, more collective cultures, not individualistic cultures like ours, but in more collective cultures, the whole region, the whole county will typically show up and expect to be hosted. So you can get the picture then, especially you dads, especially you dads with daughters, how expensive it would be <laughs> to provide wine for all of these guests that were gonna come. And wine was important. Wine was so important. There was a saying in Palestine in the first century that says, where there is no wine, there is no joy. It's like, you know, what do we say here in Seattle? Where there is no coffee, there is no happiness. Or what, what do we say? There is, no, there is no life. You never heard that? Oh, it's there. Okay. Um, wine, was more than, wine was more than a beverage. It was a sign. It was a sign of God's provision. It was an agrarian society, so to have a harvest that could produce wine was a sign of God's uh, provision. It was a sign of his blessing. It was a sign of his divine approval and abundance. That's what it meant. And at a wedding, it was very much signified the blessing that Yahweh was presiding over these celebrations and, a, and blessing this union. That's what it meant. So you can imagine the problem and the panic that started to set in 
at this wedding when the initial order of wine that seemed maybe generous at first, there was some kind of miscalculation going on here, but more and more people came, friends of the family, business associates, clients, admirers of the family, more and more people start to show up and more times that people would raise their glass for it to be filled by the servants, they wouldn't come as fast or maybe they'd just get half. It was starting to understand quickly something's not right and it's becoming skimpy, and it's, began, it's beginning to run out. Now, at a feast like this, there were also established roles that happened. The servants reported to the chief steward, the MC, the master of ceremonies, who in turn is responsible to the bridegroom for executing the plan for the feast. The bridegroom is like the quarterback, but he got his plan from the bride, or excuse me, the steward is the quarterback who got his plan from the bridegroom, and he's expected to execute that plan, and the servants all answered to the steward, okay? Um, and these lines of authority were even determined, or you could see it by how the room was set up. Back then, the bridegroom was at the center of the festivities. Literally, they would place the bridegroom in the middle of the room, right in the middle of the room. Imagine, just for your mind, a schematic, a spotlight, right on the middle of the, of the bridegroom. The chief steward would be on the edge of the circle, right out, right kind of in the spotlight, but right on the edge. And the servants were hidden in the darkness, in the dark edges of the room, bustling about, serving the guests. That's what was going on. And in our story, also at the edge, were six prosaic jars of water for ceremonial washing. That's the scene, what's going on here. Bridegroom's in the middle, spotlight on him. The chief steward or the MC was right at the edge of that spotlight, kind of guiding the festivities. He was in charge of the servants, the wine. The servants were in the, in the dark places, just being unseen but serving. So Mary, when she realizes that a social disaster is about to come upon this party because the wine is running out, she goes to Jesus because she knows that her son has power to do something about this. And in a sense, she has some power. She exercises her power as his mom to go to him. In a good Jewish community, there's power in a parent. Kids are taught, and Jesus was taught, growing up, children obey your parents for this is right. It's, uh, it's in the Decalogue, it's right there in the heart of Judaism. So there's some power that she has. Jesus, I know you have power. I want you to release this power on this wedding. Look, look how this goes down. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus says back to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And she just walked, in my mind, she walks away. Do what he says, walks away. Now there are six stone water jars there for the, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servant, fill the jars with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. Now Jesus is bound neither by the laws of physics and chemistry nor by the laws of social obligation, right? He's unbound by those laws. He did not have to heed the voice of his mother. Jesus' only obligation is to the mission of his father. That's what he meant when he said, my time has not yet come. I'm not ready to fulfill this mission, a mission that will, be, that will withstand even the ultimate powerlessness of death itself. That's how powerful Jesus is, is going to be. He's going to conquer death. And yet, here at, even though he's not bound by this, here at Cana, Jesus' act of power, according to John, is the sign of his ultimate mission. So you've got this sense of it's insignificant and yet very significant. What has this got to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with me. This is just a social dilemma, or is it a cosmic dilemma that I've come to serve? There's the sense of, actually, this is a micro, this is a, uh, this is a little, a micro scale, a micro act playing out that actually has everything to do with what I'm doing cosmically. G, uh, Paul, John says it's his sign and his ultimate mission, for it brings back to life 
It affirms and enriches the very good patterns of social life. Did you notice that? Going back to Genesis 1, this affirms and enriches the very good patterns of social life. What are some very good patterns of culture going on here? Someone say marriage. Marriage, yes. Hospitality, yes. What's that? Festivity, Festivity. celebration, absolutely, very good. Joy, Uh, Christmas time. I hope you got to gather around a table and celebrate the love, the blessings, the goodness of God. That's the whole point. It's not just to eat food till you fall asleep during a football game. That's not the point. The point is to, man, I'm pulling up to a table of God's blessing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna excite my taste buds on this incredible food and drink. I'm gonna look into the eyes of the people I love the most. We're gonna laugh, we're gonna cry, we're gonna hug, celebrate. It's very good, very good. It's culture. And even honoring parents is here. Jesus does that. He honors his mother. And these were, and still are, very good aspects to human flourishing and culture that were in danger of being dried up along with the wine that was going out. Here in this, the first of the signs, according to John, Jesus' power, first of all, restores family and feasting and abundant joy. It restores the very good culture of mankind. The first miracle is not about overturning all existing social arrangements and transitions. He will go on and he'll overturn some stuff. At some times, Jesus' power will be to break corrupt power. There's a place for that. But this first miracle... The first impression that that John wants us to get of Jesus was that his power comes to restore the very good things of human life. To the contrary, at Cana, Jesus' power restores the originally good patterns of life to their original blessedness and customs, like the honoring of parents, the hospitality of guests, the the art of of viniculture, even, the art of wine, even the presiding role of the chief steward was a very good role. Jesus saved his job, saved his career. It was in danger. Jesus restores it. So number one, the power of Jesus is given to restore. It's given to restore. Please write that down. It's very important for our vision and God's vision for you. The power of Jesus, the image bearer, comes to restore what's very good in society and in culture. Secondly, Jesus' power brings overflow, abundance, excellence, and flourishing. You saw it, didn't you? Let me read this to you. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had become wine, it wasn't just okay wine. It wasn't just to get them through a tough time. It was the best wine. Listen to the the exuberance of this chief priest. Uh, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And, And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. In other words, the human, uh, you could say fallen aspect of human nature is to give out a, a little bit of the good stuff first and then to gradually skimp it back. Right? It's a uh, mentality of scarcity. We better, you know, let's not get too carried away. Jesus shows up and blows the doors off this thing and gives and pours out on this little local wedding the best wine anyone's ever tasted. This is not a story about a wedding surviving, barely making it through a crisis. This is a story about, because of Jesus, a wedding thriving, flourishing, The wine that Jesus provides is by far surplus to the requirements. By the way, six stone water jars holding 20 to 30 gallons each, that's 750 bottles of wine-ish. Not just quality, but quantity. It's just, he, he just stocks them up. They can keep going. 
abundance and flourishing. Remarkably, this theme of abundance is not just a one-off to the first miracle or unique to this miracle. This is a reoccurring theme throughout Jesus's, if you were to trace, especially his parables. You'll see not just enough, but more. Think of uh, the beggar Lazarus, who's comforted in the arms of Abraham. Think of the workers who were hired at the end of the day, but they still get a full day's wage. Abundance. Blowing the doors off that thing. Think of the prodigal son slinking home to beg for an apology from his dad. I'll be your servant. Only to be smothered by the father's love and goodness and riches and robes and kill the fattened calf. This is the heart of God flourishing. Not just enough. Not just, let's just make, let's just survive 2023. No, no. Think more than that, dear friends. Think more than that, dear friends. Dream for your family. Let us make. What can we do? That's number two. That's all I have to say about that. Number three, you're like, that's a rarity. Jesus' power is hidden even as it's revealed. This is beautiful. Jesus' power is hidden even as it's revealed. True, I'll give you this, the servants and the disciples and we the readers. We're let in on this little secret that it was Jesus. But as far as we can tell, this is so remarkable to me. This is why I love Jesus. Most of the guests, the chief steward, and the wedded couple themselves had no idea that a miracle had taken place. The event that, this is what's so striking to me about this story. The event that, according to John, reveals Jesus' glory, it reveals his glory, it, it spills over, it blesses even those who neither knew nor believed that the Son of God was even in their midst at the wedding that day. It still blesses them whether they know it's Jesus or not. Isn't that God? If I could make sunsets, if I could make trees, with leaves that bloom, I would probably stamp a little made by Mike Monje. <laughs> made in heaven. This sunset was brought to you by. But God just gives. You don't have to be a, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus or even a believer in God to enjoy a good sunset. There is a, I can't remember the movie I was watching, darn it, and I was going to write it down, but I couldn't remember it, but there was this movie where this atheist is talking to this young woman, and he's just riled up about God and how he hates God, and it's early in the morning, they're on this walk, and he's like, and God this, and there is no God, and if there was a God, then how come this and that, and in mid-sentence, the sun comes up, and he goes, oh my gosh, have you ever seen such a beautiful sunset? (laughs) He was like, there's no proof that there's a, oh my gosh, look at that, what a beautiful sunrise, you know, it was just ironic in that moment, even though he couldn't see it, he could see, he could be, he could benefit. God is so gracious. He's so good. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's so good. Yeah. No. I don't think. I'm so sorry. I lost the last part. Yes, the man contradicted himself, but he didn't know it. He wasn't aware in that moment, no, in the movie. In fact, the movie wasn't even trying to get that point across. I just caught it. Um, The bridegroom gets the credit here, if you notice in the story. It's the bridegroom that gets the credit, but Jesus, according to John, gets the glory. A glory that is hidden even as it's revealed. Jesus is content to stay in the shadows with the rest of the guests and just have a good time and drink the wine that he just provided. Isn't that why we love him? And that goes into my fourth point. Jesus' power reveals his glory. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. This very freighted word, glory, is John's own assessment of this sign. This is how John, John would have described it this way. He would have said it was glory. 
There's just no other way to bring, to, to tell you what it was like to be there. It was just glory. But think about this. How? Does it strike? How does this reveal God's glory? Let me put, I mean, Jesus was not transfigured right before anyone's eyes. In this, this dazzling brilliance, this light from heaven didn't come in this voice. This is my beloved son. Do what he said. You don't hear any of that. And yet this revealed his glory. He never becomes the center of attention. He just continues to recline at the outskirts of the party that he just saved. This is the heart of God. The glory revealed here, what I want to put off to you, and I'm trying to pawn off on you this morning, the glory revealed here is Jesus' true identity as the true culture maker, the true flourisher, the true image of God, the true image that points to Yahweh. What is revealed at Cana is the ultimate truth of Jesus' mission, like he said in Revelation, to make all things new, to bring all things to the glory for which they were made, to cultivate and bring all things to the glory by which they were made. This story shows that Jesus is not just a good teacher, he's the restorer of all life. He's much more than that. He's not just an obedient son. He's the perfect son of the father, obedient even unto death. He's not just the fixer of our little cares and problems and concerns, but he's the one who provides the best wine when we think that there's no, there's no other way out, when we can only expect the worst. He comes and says, I'm going to provide the best. And it's not insignificant that this revelation of glory happened at a wedding. The ultimate sign of culture is a family, is a man and woman. A a wedding is a moment of glory, unveiling as it does two human beings, male and female, created not just good, but created very good. In the image of God, reunited across the gap opened up between man and woman and the fall of sin. He's restoring, he's restoring humanity. resplendent in the glory of their wedding garments. Here they are, a sign of magnificent love. Human culture, let me say this. Did you know? So, good, very good, but did you know that you were made for glory? That's embarrassing to even receive that, isn't it? Does that seem a little, does that seem a little um, audacious? Did I say, when I say, hey, God wants, you, God wants to share his glory with you, do you immediately go, Ugh. I don't know about that. Like, okay, I like that I'm good. In fact, I even like the idea. It was a stretch, but I like that maybe I'm very good. I like that. I'll let that, I'll kind of suck on that for a little bit. But it's more. It's abundantly more. Um, Sound is good. Have you been out in the woods before? You hear a babbling brook? Or you hear the wind come through the trees. Or if you've lived in the Midwest at any time, you hear the thunder of a a summer storm. (sighs) Powerful. Or you hear the birds singing their beautiful songs. That's all very, very good. But then there's the goodness of music. The skillful tending and tuning of sound that is found in every human culture. Did you know that? Music is found in every human culture. That's very good. Not to toot my own horn, but maybe you would say this is very good. And humble. (laughs) I'm proud of being humble. But every once in a while, every once in a while, you hear something, you hear some music that's so moving that it shakes you to your core. And it leaves you utterly satisfied and yet hungrier for more all at the same time. It borders on glory. Maybe it's Handel's Messiah. Maybe it's the roar of a symphony. Maybe it's 
an incredible, powerful female vocalist that just makes the hair on your, and you're, 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 you're like, that's it, and yet I want to hear it again. The best of culture has this quality of transcendence to it, doesn't it? The ability to be, utter, to be utterly itself and yet to speak something far greater than itself at the same time. That's glory. Weight. There's weight to this. There's something ancient to this. That, my friends, was Jesus. He was utterly human. He was utterly himself. And yet, there was something much, 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 much weightier and more to him all at once. You could feel him when he came in the room. He was strangely ordinary and yet not. Jesus is the ultimate human, the true image of God, using his power to bring flourishing wherever he goes. And that's the story. If you keep reading the story of Jesus, wherever the guy's foot touches, people begin to heal, be restored, and flourish to abundance again. They're empowered to go out two by two and do the same things that he's doing. Jesus said, you'll do greater things than me. We think, oh, come on, that's like for the... No, he's saying, this is my vision for mankind. Abundance, multiple glory. If you have the faith to believe it, dear friends, God is not just making you very good again. And God has not just given you power, but in Jesus, he's given you glory and he's making you more and more glorious. Do you want me to prove it? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Listen, this is it. And we all, followers of Jesus, with unveiled face, listen, behold the glory of the Lord, talking about Jesus, and what does that do? We're being transformed into that same image. Who are you being transformed into as a follower of Jesus? into the image, into Jesus. You're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, the true human. It goes on, into the same image from, from this is for you now, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God looks at you and he doesn't just want to make you survive or get by. He doesn't want to even just make you very good. You, you already are very good. God has big things for you. Do you have the faith to grab that today? God has big things for you, abundance, thriving, glory, so that culture will be glorious and pointing to the creator pointing to God. Your glory will be revealed even as it's hidden. You won't have to be the spotlight. You won't have to be, take the credit. Maybe someone else will get the credit, but Jesus will get the glory for what you do. This is what he wants for us in the coming years. And we, as we behold the glory of Jesus, we will flourish and be changed. That's the path of our church going forward. What's Calvary Wallingford about? We want to behold the glory of Jesus together. We want to follow Jesus. Why? Because we're going to flourish and be abundant and bear fruit and be changed from glory to glory to glory into the very image of Christ. That's where we're headed. Oh gosh, he's making you into a jewel that shines brighter than all the stars in the sky for the glory of God. How? Well, notice it comes from the, from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's the end of verse 18 in chapter, 2 Corinthians. It comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we follow Jesus, as we behold him, as we look on his glory, the Holy Spirit takes what we know about Jesus in our heads and moves it into our hearts. Have you had, have you had a moment like that? where you've heard the same thing over and over and over again. Maybe you've heard, maybe for those of you that were raised in a Christian home, uh, kids that I've mentored that have become adults, uh, especially kids in Christian homes, I've taught them the same thing. 
over and over and over again. And then one day they come to me and they say, oh my gosh, how you, the way that, I've just, I've, I don't think I've ever understood it like that before. And I think to myself, I've been saying it to you for four years, three times a week, the same thing. What happened? The Holy Spirit went, Duh. I knew it, but now I know it. It's glory, it's weight. It's new, but it's ancient. That's how it happens. Now, last thing. All of you have power. Think, think, think. All of you have power. Every person in this room has been given power. And power is for what? Image bearing. And image bearing is for what? Flourishing. Power is for what? Say it. Image bearing. And image bearing is for what? Flourishing. You have power because you're an image bearer. Some of you have incredible talent. Some of you have educational skills. Some of you have the great gift of experience. Learning, maybe from your mistakes. That's called wisdom. Some of you have skills. Some of you know trades. Some of you just love people. Some of you are encouragers. Some of you have homes. Think of it. I want to pause. Think of, try to categorize, where do you have power? You know, it seems embarrassing to receive that, but you have it. Where do you have it? Some of you have power in just being a family. I took my son a few years ago to visit somebody who was abandoned by their parents. I took Noble to pick, to, I took Noble to just encourage them just to have a kid around. Thought it would bring them joy. And this young woman looked at, looked at Noble like, I wish I, had, I wish I had your dad. It's power. How can we invite people in? Think about your power. Now think of this, because I want this to get very practical for you. How can, you don't have to wait. How can you use your power right now to restore? Or maybe to contribute to restoration? to invite amending in a relationship or to bring rest restoration to something that's very good, maybe at your work, maybe between friends, maybe, I don't know, ask God to bring it to you. How can your power be applied to something that restores something that's very good? Think, think. I want you to fill your mind with it, think. I want you to go out and I want you to be thinking about it. I want you to see it everywhere you go. I have power, how can I apply it here? When I see a homeless person forgotten as I'm going in the store, maybe I don't have power to give him money, but I have power to look him in the eye and say, hi, you're seen, you matter, you're a fellow image bearer, power, restore dignity. Okay, secondly, how can you use your power, let's go further, to even bring abundance how can you use your power? How can you start saying, let there be? And who can you collaborate with this week? Who can, maybe it's your husband or your wife. You can look each other in the eye and you can say, what could we make for Jesus? How could we make the world around us better? Maybe get together with your kids and dream a little bit. Hey, kids, what could we do as a family? Let's have a family project. What could we do? What do you want? Let's, let's dream a bit. Oh, you're, you're operating as an image, the image of God. How can we bring flourishing? Or you can help your kids dream. How could you bring flourishing? We call Noble in the present tense our little engineer. Because we're trying to plant that in his mind. You could. What could you do? I want to build a bridge from San Francisco straight to Alameda and skip Oakland. That would be helpful to a lot of people, son. Man, society would flourish a lot. You know what I'm doing? I'm saying, look what you could do for people. You could make some good food. You could make some good bread. 
You could come here on Tuesday night and serve Taco Tuesdays to our friends in the room right over there. You could help them find a job. You could sit down on their, across from them in their their cot and just listen to their story. Power. Power. How could your power be revealed even as it's hidden? You don't have to take credit. You just do it for others. And how does it reveal Jesus? How does it reveal Jesus? This is what I think God wants for us. Not just in 2023. I think this is what we, maybe 2023, we start thinking this way and it it goes, I would love to see a church that's flourishing. And what I don't mean that is institutionally. I mean a church where every member is empowered to flourish in their families, in their parenting, in their careers, in their schooling, in every aspect of life that God, you're flourishing and you're agents of flourishing. If we can contribute to that as your community, as your family, if you contribute to that in us, oh man, oh man. Who's with me? Yeah? A gift that I didn't mention is the gift of suffering. A heartache. A grief. The loss. Things that didn't work out, the broken relationships. In Jesus, He turns that back into gold. Your suffering can bring up flourishing to others. Give yourself permission to move that into the wind column. For our God made the world flourish through his loss, through his suffering. Everything about what you're suffering is redemptive if you're a follower of Christ. And he wants to use it in the lives of others. Some of you will actually be able to say, I do know what you feel. I do know what you're going through. (laughs) Not very many of us can say that. And I know God is faithful. Can you offer your suffering to him as a gift, as a gift of power?